0: This is Paul Adamson and I'm in conversation with Emily O'Reilly. Emily O'Reilly is the European Ombudsman. First things first, Emily, um, maybe a lot of people actually do not know uh, what the ombudsman does and who she is. So could you please, in a few words, explain it as a start off what your job actually is all about?
1: Okay. Well, I was previously national ombudsman in Ireland, which meant that I took uh, complaints against the administration, the various government departments, the health service and all of that. So as European ombudsman, I do the same thing. But instead of um, obviously member state administrations, I take complaints against the... European administration and um, the European Commission would be our biggest client. Not because it's the biggest sinner, but because obviously it's the big beast in the jungle. And we take complaints against all of the agencies, bodies and institutions of the European uh, Union. So typically it could be somebody, uh, you know, a small company in Italy has a contract with the commission or an agency to deliver a service, runs into difficulties, comes to us. Somebody's looking for a job, does a competition, doesn't feel they've been treated fairly by the uh, European Personnel Selection Office, comes to us. Somebody is complaining that um, the Commission isn't properly dealing with an infringement complaint they come to us. Somebody is looking for records from the Commission or an agency they don't get them they come to us. So a lot of it, uh, obviously the member state almost really deal with the bread and butter stuff of people's lives, you know, health, social protection, um, all of that, and they are um, uh, member state competences. So it tends to be, even though the nature of the job in terms of how I investigate and my powers of in investigation and so on, it's the, the, the type of complaint is what differentiates it. So a lot of it is about transparency, ethics, conflicts of interest, that sort of thing.
0: Okay, well I'm sure we'll cover a lot of those issues during the course of this, this podcast, Emily, but Uh, I see a lot in your literature, Use of the word maladministration, now that's a word you don't hear that often in Norman parlance, but is that basically a euphemism for poor administration almost, or or even incompetence, or is it more serious, you're actually also suggesting or looking into potential corruption as well?
1: It's all of that. Um, uh, Obviously it it goes... uh, the first thing you have to check is if uh, the administration, if an institution body or agency is acting legally, but um, that 's one thing, but that 's only one part of poor administration. It could be that you 're just not being treated fairly, uh, that right. there are delays that there 's incompetence, mistakes have been made, a whole range of things i mean, I like to think that you know before the courts you get law before an ombudsman you get uh, justice.
0: Right, okay. Well, I, you use the word transparency. I mean, um, I'm, I'm interested in that, that concept because there's a common view, as you know, outside Brussels that Brussels is a rather opaque decision making uh, community where things, deals are struck behind closed doors and, you know, in smoke filled rooms. As that's how the cliche goes. But uh, how concerned are you about transparency? maybe it's another way of asking the question how much success have you had in, in promoting more transparency?
1: Well, I think there are two things in relation to how people look at, at Brussels. I mean, as as we know, there's just an awful lot of just ignorance, a lack of knowledge about how, how Brussels works. And that's sometimes because people aren't interested, sometimes because they find it boring, because of the way sometimes the, the EU very often communicates itself. And I think wh- when people find something difficult to understand, they, um, they move away from it, and they don't want to know, and sometimes they can feel even even hostile towards it. So, But in relation to the transparency of the institutions, I think it's, 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 it's vitally important, um, and I think never more so now when the EU is beset by all the crisis that we all know about. And I think people are becoming... Uh, more demanding of the institutions to be more uh, transparent. We have had a lot of success. I mean the recommendations that I make nobody has to accept them uh, but in fact 90% of the, between eighty-five, ninety percent of the recommendations that I make are accepted. Now I, I found my work easier in a sense under this particular commission because they held up uh, transparency uh, uh, as a mark uh, of their of their administration, of what they wanted it to be and of what they wanted it to be judged by. So that makes it easier for me when I go to them and say, you'd be delighted to hear that I can help you in your efforts to become more transparent. Here's a recommendation in relation to the release of a record or something like that. Okay.
0: Well, the risk of being slightly provocative, I mean, you could argue up to a point, well, some people could argue up to a point that transparency is a motherhood and apple pie. How can you possibly be against transparency? It's self-evidently a, a good thing. Having said that, do you think there are situations and circumstances in which uh, one cannot always, always expect full transparency and it's unrealistic uh, to even pursue it?
1: Well, of course. I mean, transparency isn't just about, you know, letting information out. It's also about appropriately keeping information back. I mean, there has to be the space for what they call um, the deliberative process. I mean, obviously, deals have to be done and sometimes they're sensitive, I suppose, particularly at council level when you've got 28 member states. Uh, shortly to be twenty seven, uh, <laughs> trying to uh, uh, trying to uh, make a deal, and then they're having to deal with the parliament, and then they're having to deal with the commission, and so on. I recognise that. I mean, and it's not transparency for its own sake, either. I suppose what I've been trying to do is to sort of, and I mean, I absolutely take your point. I get tired myself talking about accountability, ethics, and transparency. You know. Um, uh, I remember a former uh, finance minister, former commissioner here, Charlie McCreevy, used to talk about the the great goddess OTA, openness, transparency, and accountability, right. and, and you do feel, as I said, a little bit tired yourself saying it, but I think certainly since the economic crisis, I think that has given an added urgency and it has made a much greater business case. Uh, for the institutions to become more, uh, for the institutions to become uh, more transparent, because I think there is such a demand and I think particularly upon with the younger generation for whom privacy is almost an outdated concept, there's mm. an expectation that things are going to be out there, and if they're not out there uh, they're going to be suspicious uh, about it and also I think that because of the crisis of trust that we all hear about in which the Edelman uh, survey the most recent Edelman survey showed uh, really shocking levels of decline in, in, trust. In, in trust. Exactly, and I mean they made the point that you know a, a well-functioning democracy now that that trust is is vital, if not the most vital element in relation to whether a, well, they didn't say it quite like this: democracy lives or dies. But certainly, right. um, it is seen increasingly as something that um, in which there is a huge self-interest from corporations and institutions, be they public or private, uh, to um, to. increase uh, uh, among their clients or their citizens or whatever. And if they don't do that, uh, then the further erosion in trust is going to lead to the further political splintering that we see, mm. uh, the rise in populism and all of that. What's changing now is that instead of being just this abstract jargon that only you know NGOs and people like myself care about, they're beginning to see that if they want to be successful and continue to uh, succeed in, in whatever their agenda is, they're going to have to build up trust. And by doing that, they're going to have to become more transparent about what they do and how they
0: do it. You said just now that uh, you, in the sense of, I, mean, I should maybe press you on that just for clarification from my own, my own education, that you have no real formal powers. People not, can't necessarily do what you say they, sh- they should do. So how do you how do you see your role in, get, in getting things done? I mean, recommendations are fine, but do you feel you have a kind of almost like a, a moral power if not a kind of legal power?
1: Yes, I was hoping you weren't going to use that phrase. I remember <laughs> I remember when I, when I became an ombudsman in Ireland and I was at my first um, you know, conference of um, European ombudsman in National Ombudsman and somebody talked about your moral authority and that sort of made me feel slightly uneasy. Right. And what if I wake up in a Monday morning and I'm not feeling that my moral authority is really where it should be? How do, I, <laughs> how do I operate then? But I think it's very it's very simple what I do and I think in a way when when institutions go bad uh, they go bad because they don't do what it says on their tin. You know, right. and I think if an ombudsman does what it says on their tin, then then they will be successful. I think the primary characteristic has to be independence, independence, independent not just from the institutions that you're, watch, you're doing a watchdog thing over, but independent from the complainants as well. Right. You know, the institutions have to feel that you're you're giving them a fair shake, and I think that um, if they feel how, even if they don't particularly like the recommendation, if they think that it has been arrived at fairly forensically, blah, blah, and so on. And uh, then, um, uh, you know, I think as a former um, UK ombudsman said, un- un- unless, uh, you know, the ombudsman has gone bonkers, um, uh, I'm not sure how you're going to translate that, um, <laughs> or is offered trolley, uh, or his trolley, then it should be accepted. But I think as well there's an important piece, and that is an ombudsman succeeds, given the fact that nobody actually has to. is obliged to follow my recommendations or recommendations of an ombudsman if everybody agrees to play the game and by playing the game the institutions who I mean this the ombudsman arose out of the Maastricht treaty in the mid 90s it's there it's uh, whatever also in the charter of fundamental rights right to good administration so therefore there is an obligation on them to uh, at least listen to the ombudsman but I think um, the institutions uh, accept uh, the validity obviously, of the, of the Office of the Ombudsman, and if they know that if they want it to work and be part of that accountability mechanism throughout the EU institutions, then they have to, uh, uh, they, they have to respect my recommendations, unless, obviously, they, they find genuine faults with them.
0: OK, I, I think I'm right in saying the office has been in existence for over, over 20 years, is that right? And I think it's fair to say also, we you can always push back, that the profile of, of the position the post and the, the office has been relatively low until around about October 2013 when a certain Emily O'Reilly became the ombudsman. But um, it strikes me, and then tell me if I'm on the right track or not, that you obviously you're... I would not say you're restless, but you are quite uh, keen and uh, and uh, diverting some energies to maybe to maybe uh, more generously interpreting your your mandate. And I'm I'm struck by a recent speech. You and it's a it maybe example of how listeners can think about how you're going to be doing. The, some stuff in the in the rest of your mandate as ombudsman uh, a speech you gave about uh, about the media i think you used the phrase media ethics media fallibility media culpability let's so let's finish off this podcast for May emily by by exploring and challenging on your views about the current state of the media especially post-brexit uh and post-trump um what tell us what you think about the state of the media at the moment
1: i just want to refer back to just to a phrase that you use generously interpretating interpreting, interpreting <laughs> my mandate i'm interpreting my mandate uh I, I i think you know every Ombudsman has has a particular a particular focus or so on uh, i thought it was very important when i came in that i made the office uh, even more useful than it was i've been focusing a lot on my powerful initiative investigation to look at public interest issues and so on and so far there's been no pushback in relation to that in relation to the um uh, to the media and if i
0: interrupt you sorry i should maybe point out for our listeners' benefit, in case they don't realise, you were a senior journalist in Ireland before you became National Ombudsman and then European Ombudsman. So your yeah. views on on media are particularly uh, important. I think. Yeah,
1: well, I think it's, um, I mean, I've been, I've been watching you know, reading uh, a lot how the, the media, particularly the United States I suppose, has been uh, doing a lot of navel gazing and, and um, soul examination in, in relation to, to, to the Trump, uh, the, the advent of, of, of Trump and actually even though there's a lot of doom and gloom about it, I mean I think I read one particular piece by, by uh, an American journalist who said actually this could be good for us, this is a wake up call, this is getting us out of our comfort zone yeah. and this is f- forcing us to look mm-hmm. at, our, at our, our, our methodology, our, our our philosophy, our focus, how do you deal with, with uh, something, a phenomenon as unusual uh, and strange and bizarre and whatever else? What other words you want to use as 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 Mr. Trump, um, and I think this could be all of the the, the agonising that has been going on for the last you know ten years, with the rise of social media, um, you know the 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 rise of the informal media, the fact that everybody now with a smartphone essentially is, is a journalist. I think this is going to bring this crisis, if you like, is going to bring things to a head in the media, and I think it could potentially have a transformative effect on on, on media, and I think that that'll be welcomed, and it'll be a, a fascinating journey. For the next four years.
0: Okay, and then finally, I mean, final question. Do you, do you see? Let's let's finally explore how this this galvanising impact on on the media will, will will take place. I mean, let's make you. I promised myself I would not do this, but let's talk about Brexit. In this post brexit world now, where obviously the campaign took the the direction it took, but the, the Remain camp obviously accused the Leave camp of. Indulging in rather more lies and falsehoods and alternative facts, maybe that new phrase, than the Remain camp did, but that's obviously an open discussion. But now, going forward, do you see the media playing uh, quite an important role in in sort of holding the government to account, the UK government to account, on how it deals with the, the, the divorce proceedings under Article 50?
1: Well, absolutely, and and I, I think what's what's slightly disturbing both in in parts of the the, the British media and also well I haven't noticed it as much in the U.S. media it comes from other sources there, is this a kind of a a fear factor that's coming in almost a, a sense of of, of threat or, or or menace if if you're not. You know, pr- you know, resolutely pro Brexit. Sometime, somehow, you're 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 an enemy of, of, of the nation. You're, you're you're a traitor. And I think it was interesting that that Theresa May, the Prime Minister, said uh, last week almost warned people not to be be very careful about what they said in relation to Brexit mm. negotiations, not to leak, not to whatever. And of course, there is an interest in any negotiations. The running commentary stuff, yeah. Yeah, but I mean, come on. I mean, the, the 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 next two years are vital for the UK. Certainly, they're also vital for the EU and arguably the wider world. And I think we have, I never like to say an absolute right, but I mean, citizens really need to know what's been done, what's going on. And I think the media have a very important role to play in that. But I see myself having, and my fellow Information commissioners and ombudsmen uh, right across Europe is having a a particularly vital role in relation to that as well and and making sure that those negotiations are as transparent as possible, which does not mean everything has to be out there, but there has to be a sufficiency of information so that people um, can evaluate for themselves what is being done in their names, a very important deal that is going to have a huge impact on all of our lives.
0: Well, we have to leave it there. Emily O'Reilly, thank you very much for your time.
1: Thank you, Paul.